0: I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast to celebrate the work and the talent of our research team. And I have the great pleasure to have with me today Dr. Lucy Burrowsudro, who is a defense economist in our military analysis team, defense and military analysis team. She is. Uh, she did her PhD at an unpronounceable but prestigious, unpronounceable by me, but prestigious French university in Paris called Assas, and she uh, was an analyst for the French Ministry of Defense and now runs Defense Economics for the military balance program here at the double I Lucy, thank you so much for taking time away from your actual work to talk with me today. Thank you very much, Corey. So as our listeners know, we have a regular format of questions that we ask people. And the first one is going to be so much fun to ask Lucy because her actual research is what is all over the news these days. So Lucy,
1: Tell our listeners which of your research is all over the news these days. Um, Thank you, Corey. So, um, as you mentioned, my um, PhD was on uh, arms exports. I studied French and Swedish arms exports. So I tried to keep an eye on on the issue of arms sales uh, around the world uh, in my work at the institute. And what has been quite newsworthy uh, on this uh, area is the war in Yemen and arms sales to uh, countries uh, who participate in the war in Yemen. Uh, This has been very much over the news since the the Saudi uh, intervention uh, started in 2015. Um, As sales of of military equipment to countries who are involved in this war has become uh, more and more controversial and this is controversial because um, the coalition countries who intervene in Yemen have been accused of violating international humanitarian law and actually arms exports are regulated by international treaties which theoretically prohibit sales uh, to countries who violate um, international humanitarian law. Uh, So I know that in my own country, the American
0: Congress is up in arms on this count. Which other countries will have to reconsider their arms sales to the coalition of countries fighting in Yemen? Britain, presumably. Who else?
1: There are many European countries who have started to reconsider their uh, arms sales um, to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or Egypt uh, in the context of the war in Yemen. Um, So this started really by the European Parliament, who uh, produced a resolution saying they would want to see an embargo against these countries. So those resolutions are not binding, but you've seen a number of countries trying to go uh, along those lines. You've had the Netherlands, um, Belgium, where Flanders and and Wallonia actually have their own uh, export control systems, but the two regions have adopted uh, such restrictions. Germany, of course, um, and most uh, Scandinavian countries. And in the UK, um, you've actually had a legal decision uh, telling the government to review or to seize its um, licenses to Saudi Arabia and uh, its partners. Um, and to review its export control processes, um, although there is an appeal at the moment. But you can see that there's a trend going that way.
0: Yeah. So in your work, you look at European-wide arms sales. Mm. How does this patchwork of different regulations Mm. get resolved? I'm I'm thinking in particular of how do European countries band together on Mm. common arms sales projects if Mm. one or another country can each uh, want to opt out in specific cases.
1: What's the solution to that problem? So the, there is already a common instrument, which is called the, actually, the common position uh, adopted by the EU uh, in 2008, uh, which sets a list of eight criteria that countries are supposed to, um, to go through when they authorize uh, export licenses for their uh, defense companies. Uh, however, the, um, the interpretation of those criteria very much remains in the hands of the different states. And that's why you see different uh, export uh, behaviors from uh, European countries. So this is uh, a problem when, you, as you mentioned, like you have joint development programs. So you want to export, so you have different countries who export the same uh, system. They have to agree on common rules. And f- for the past uh, yeah, 20, 30 years, it has pretty much worked. But now this issue is becoming so uh, and flamed, and so much uh, on the top of the news that um, they have the divergence, divergences are saying to be uh, too uh, too strong. Um, so how do you go uh, beyond this? There are different solutions that are um, that can be discussed. Uh, I think one the, the one way would be to uh, devolve more powers to the European Union, so you have this kind of extra um, supranational entity that would enforce more guidance um, on the different countries mm-hmm. and therefore centralize the decision making a little, better, a little bit better. And do
0: you think that mechanism is adequately strong to bridge the differences between, mm. for example, France and Germany? Because what I took mm. away from, from your PhD dissertation is the fact that the French have a very mm. almost industrial mm. policy of mm. arms sales in Mm. a way that I Mm. struggle to see Mm. Germany ever being comfortable with. Will Mm. giving the power to the EU Mm. um, give Germany enough Mm. distance Mm. from the decisions, you
1: think, that it can be politically salient? I think that is um, the devolution to, well, more devolution to the EU is uh, more advocated by Germany, actually, and and Ah, France quite this. So the the two positions are that France or the French defense establishment and defense industry really doesn't want any more power given to the EU because they want to retain uh, sovereign decision making on this. Whereas from the German perspective, it actually pushes the responsibility of taking the decision a bit further apart. Um, But I think actually this could be a common ground. This this could be a a middle ground between the two countries where you have France maybe applying a bit more restrictions and Germany may, may be, you know, uh, being a bit more like going more for consensus with its European partners uh, on this issue. So uh, it could actually be a way for the two countries to, to meet uh, in this direction. Excellent.
0: Um, so how did you get
1: interested in this kind of work? What S- makes you a defense economist? Um, so actually, I, I started working on this uh, with my master's dissertation, so that's almost 10 years ago now, <laughs> Uh it's always a bit, <laughs> it's a bit painful to admit.
0: No, um, no, no, <laughs> because look at the excellent body of work you have done in the meantime. You're right. looking at that all wrong, my friend. All
1: right, let's look at the, the experience, yeah. Um, so I started with this in, in 2010 with my master's dissertation, which led me to an internship uh, at CIPRI, which is the Stockholm uh, International Peace Research Institute. They work on a database on arms transfers, and I I did an internship with the team there, uh, which then led me to work on, to stay in Sweden and work on controversial controversial weapons production, so um, anti-personnel mines, um, cluster munitions, nuclear uh, weapons. Just and to be uh, clear mm-hmm. you were analyzing those issues you
0: weren't actually working on those weapon systems
1: no I was analyzing the <laughs> production of those uh, weapons production and sale of those weapon systems so trying to identify companies around the world who were involved Cuz in I was going to be super
0: impressed
1: <laughs> if you were a munitions maker
0: and nuclear engineer and that I never knew that about you yeah, I never knew that about myself so <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so yeah that's what I did for a bit and then we moved on to PhD and uh, and now here I am Talk a little bit about your PhD dissertation,
0: because you are right now transitioning in that Mm. stage. Every postdoc has Mm. been transitioning your dissertation into a book. um, (laughs) And give
1: a summation
0: Mm. of what you learned looking at the comparison
1: of Swedish and French Mm. arms exports. Um, Yeah, thank you for that question, because it's it's always also good to move back to the the Swedish case a little bit, as I've been focusing on on France uh, those past few years. Uh, I think the comparison really allowed me to see what makes, what are the factors that influence decision-making in terms of uh, arms export uh, policies. And I think what explains, in short, the big difference between France and Sweden, Sweden having, have, having a bit more restrictive position uh, on this uh, issue, is really the strength of um, civil society involvement and uh, parliamentarian control. So hmm. what you've seen in Sweden is a very, very active um, civil society a movement, a very strong NGOs, very involved in this issue, which wasn't the case so much in France. And in Sweden, the parliament is actually involved in the export control process uh, for, arms, uh, for arms sales, which is also, uh, also the case in the US, actually, interest- interestingly. But in France, the parliament doesn't have a strong role, whereas in, uh, in Sweden, parliamentarians have their say on to whether or not to authorize or uh, deny an export license. Mm-hmm. So I thought those two elements were um, interesting mechanisms to see why it was more restrictive in one way or another.
0: And, uh, so. I, being a political scientist, always love these questions about the conditions that make a country reliable or unreliable. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we are talking about the difference between of committing between authoritarian governments or liberal governments, mm-hmm. the general rule of thumb is that democracies are slow to commit but more durable in commitment. Because Mm. so, if you can get a commitment out of a Mm. democratic country, it's more likely to be sticky, it's more likely Mm. to hold over time and under pressure than a commitment Mm. from an authoritarian government, which is more Mm. easily given. But because it doesn't have civil society and public buy-in, because they don't have to go through the process Mm. of building public support, they tend to be easier to break. Is there any parallel to that in arms sales? Like, would France be a preferential arms supplier because Mm. you don't have to have parliamentary and NGO involvement? Or would Sweden Mm. more likely to be? Mm. a reliable supplier of essential weapons to a mm. country because if you can get an agreement with sweden it's likelier to mm. be sticky and to hold over under
1: pressure um in this particular area i think it's actually or the, the way our suppliers are perceived mm. um yeah actually yeah, you're right like france would be seen as a more reliable supplier than but than Sweden, but because Sweden does attach conditions to its arms sales uh, the way that France doesn't. And that is actually a a problem for what we were discussing earlier about how to gain consensus on the European stage, because what prevents France from moving towards Germany or moving towards a more European solution is because they are very much attached to that notion, to that argument that they are a reliable arms uh, supplier. Mm -hmm. And if they do change this position, it will undermine their, one of their main sales arguments uh, on the global arms market. Yeah. So overturning this is going to be very complicated.
0: That's so interesting. Thank you for that education. So my next
1: question is, what is your favorite book in your field of expertise? So, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it was the most useful <laughs> <laughs> for me. I mean, it's, it's not a novel or anything. So. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, but it's called uh, Arms and the State, Patterns of Military Production and Trade by Keith Krause. So, published at Cambridge University Press in 1992. And I think what was really useful uh, for me in this book, and I think which is useful to any person who wants to study the arms trade and understand the dynamics of the arms trade, is that he developed a framework to explain um, the patterns of arms production and sales, which holds over time. So even though his book was, was published at the end of the Cold War, it, you can still apply it today. And I think that's really important in, a, in an academic book because sometimes, you know, analytical frameworks, they are developed for a very, very specific case studies that the, the author has been doing, and it's rarely applicable or reusable in other instances. But I think what Krolls managed to do is to have this very... In, and durable uh, framework that we can apply. So I can go into the the details. Say the name of um, the book again. So it's called Arms and the State, Patterns of Military Production and Trade. Excellent, yeah, tell me more about it. So what he's done is trying to, um, his framework is based on on two aspects. So first, what are the motives for making and producing arms? So it's uh, rather unsurprisingly, wealth, power, and victory in war and what are the mechanisms for the diffusion of military technologies uh, across the globe. And from there, you can he develop the pattern of to explain um, the rise and fall, so to speak, of arms transfers of certain technologies. And you can, if you like, take the example of the drones, for instance, in military campaigns, if you look at his pattern, his um, framework, you can actually apply that. Um, so first, the um, cycle of, arm tra- of arms transfers begins when you have a new technology that's applied for new uh, warfare use. So mm-hmm. people realize, oh, actually, this I can apply it uh, to win wars. So let's let's do this, uh, which leads to um, early adopters and emergence of, of centers of innovation. And he came up with this in 1992. Uh, that was. Uh, was 19- he using two. the language mm-hmm. of early adopters? Uh, I think that's my <laughs> <laughs> reinterpretation. <laughs> okay, I was be super impressed because I
0: think of that so much really? <laughs> as a. As a term that only comes of age mm. in the
1: last ten years. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's my reading and my way of like okay, fair <laughs> explaining, <enough. laughs> explaining. It's a good way to explain <laughs> it to re-explain it, uh, rather than just reading you the book at the microphone. <laughs> 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 um, so when so then you have early adopters who start producing and using those weapons uh, in war, which leads to a gap in in different states' capabilities. Right, some states do have that new capability, and some states don't, and they. F- And the states who don't have it say, oh, can I actually buy it, which creates a demand push and a market for those uh, new types of weapons. And then you have those suppliers or early adopters. Some of them might might see a gain, uh, an economic gain in exporting, uh, which creates also a supply push in the arms trade. And at the same time, you have states who will, have, who will try to retain their technological advantage and won't be willing to export. And as time progresses, you have more and more states who have this capability to build the weapon systems, uh, which leads to a decrease in the, the trade of that technology. So I think if you look at the UAV, uh, for instance, we might still be in the middle of the second phase for the moment with still a gap in technology, but still that technology being more and more uh, diffused. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, diffusing really yeah, fast, really fast yeah. which will mean you won't have as much
0: um, mm. arms trade in it because they'll mm. be domestically produced Absolutely, by users. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. <laughs> okay, so where is the conventional wisdom in your field, wrong?
1: So I think it relates to what we were saying earlier at the start of of this podcast, of this uh, recording, uh, which is the debate on the European um, defense cooperation, in particular in the arms uh, field, and uh, in particular the Franco-German arms export uh, debate. So I think the, the way... This issue is usually presented is that Germany is the blocking state in that uh, discussion because Germany would be seen as too dogmatic in in wanting to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia. I argue that it's France that is being too too dogmatic. uh, Really? Yeah, because they don't want to question at all uh, their way uh, of uh, their arms export policy. But actually, as we were saying earlier, France is became, becoming more and more isolated, so they are becoming the blocking state uh, in that debate. Netherlands, Flanders, Wallonia, Germany, Scandinavian countries uh, have uh, started uh, imposed restriction on arms sales to the Gulf. As we said, uh, in the UK, there is now a legal decision that is um, that has stopped at least temporary temporary uh, licenses. So France is pretty much more and more isolated in this issue. So if I understand
0: you, Mm. France's position hasn't changed. Mm. Germany's position hasn't Mm -hmm. changed. What has changed is that Germany now commands the majority of Mm. European attitudes. That is, Mm. Germany hasn't moved, France hasn't moved. The rest Mm. of Europe, though, is swinging towards the German view. And that makes Mm. France the blocking vote, because mm. they want to continue yeah. arms sales
1: to set. Absolutely. Saturday. So ha. I think that's, that's the way we should see the, the situation now. And I think for France, they're really in, in a dilemma, in a bind there, because the, the political discourse is towards more European defense cooperation. But as long as they don't budge on this issue, they're going to hamper more um, the development of a new weapons program in cooperation with their partners, even though they say they want to do it. So, <laughs> uh, so I say that's how we challenge the conventional view uh, in that field.
0: That is really interesting. Um, we need to limber ourselves up enough to understand that uh, even if the we are right about the views we ascribe to the mm. governments of France and Germany,
1: mm. that they're not in isolation. That even maybe. if the views yeah.
0: don't change, they don't exist in
1: isolation. Absolutely, and we mm. tend to conflate those two things. Yeah. And this is becoming even more important because there are new uh, initiatives at the EU level to develop um, weapon systems with EU money, which may lead right. in time with the EU, as in the institutions, the commissions, the parliament, becoming involved in uh, export control issues. So unless France budgets a little bit, <laughs> it, will become more com- it will become complicated to implement those initiatives, which it has il- it itself promoted. So I think it's really tricky for the French at the moment. Ah, that
0: is interesting. They're sailing between Scylla and Charybdis Mm -hmm. on that. Um, How about your favorite work that you have done? or are some that you particularly want to showcase? And if you don't choose the one I'm thinking of, I'm going to add an additional one. I think
1: we're thinking about the same thing here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's good. I'm in agreement with my boss, so that's (laughs) that's a good point for me, I guess. Uh, So something I'm really proud of um, is the work I've done with my colleague, so she's our um, research fellow for Chinese defense policy and military modernization. What we've done together is... um, researching how much revenue Chinese uh, defense groups uh, derive from their uh, arms sales, from their defense sales. So we've published in an academic, academic journal, and our results have been used uh, by Defense News in their uh, top 100 uh, defense industry. So just to try, wait, wait, um, you're not sorry. being
0: nearly expansive enough okay. <laughs> about the splashy impact this has had. So for listeners who aren't aware, um, defense news publishes an annual list of the top 100 defense firms in the world by revenue. And they had not included Chinese firms because the Chinese don't publish any data that gives anybody a sense of reliability about where they would fit. And smart, sparkly Lucy and Maya came up with a methodology for assessing China's Mm the value of China's defense firms, got it validated by publishing the methodology in a journal of applied economics, Mm -hmm. and then Uh, did the analysis of the firms such that was of such persuasive value that Defense News now includes Chinese firms. So brava, it's fantastic work. (laughs) Explain the substance (laughs) of it to us.
1: Absolutely. So this started by um, actually frustration. (laughs) As a a researcher who works with data, um, when I used uh, Defense News or CIPRI's top 100s, and the fact that there was no Chinese firms in there This is, as an analyst who who needs numbers and trends and spreadsheets, if you don't have this, you know there's a massive gap uh, in the data and it's a flaw in your analysis. Okay, so I am drawing hearts in the air because
0: we here at the IISS love ourselves best Mm -hmm. in data, right? It's the foundation of what Mm -hmm. we do Mm -hmm. and how we keep ourselves honest Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. our analytic judgments. So hearing Mm -hmm. Lucy's description (laughs) of her aggravation about this Mm -hmm. just delights me. Go on, (laughs) Dr.
1: Um, so uh, to try to remedy to this, what Maya and I did was uh, very uh, long research uh, going through hundreds of Chinese company websites. What we're trying to assess is what a proportion of um, defense production those companies were doing. Uh, because what you have to know is that in the Chinese defense industry, we say defense industry, but actually they do all sorts of things and a lot of civilian production or dual-use production. So a lot of the work was trying to understand so wait what a they were That's doing.
0: That's not unique to Chinese companies, right? Boeing builds mm. civilian aircraft. Of and mm. so, yeah. uh, so that wasn't the unique feature mm. of them.
1: No. The difference is that Boeing publishes figures that allows right. us to say... <laughs> X percent is civilian, <laughs> X percent is military, which the Chinese don't do. Right. And uh, that's
0: what you figured out how to do.
1: Absolutely. How? Yeah. So uh, by going through um, hundreds of uh, subsidiaries, uh, so each, there, Okay, I'll just start back, but there are eight major defense groups in the Chinese defense industry, defense conglomerates, with each of them have hundreds and hundreds of subsidiaries. So we've gone th- for the mid-level of uh, subsidiaries, so we instead of going through thousands, we've went through hundreds uh, to try to identify what type of uh, productions they were doing. So either defense or civilian or a bit of both. And from there, we could get a percentage of uh, where we uh, derived the percentage uh, of the total revenue of the conglomerates that were uh, defense or not. So we did estimate those numbers. Uh, and we could say for those big conglomerates, what was the proportion allocated? Well, they derived from defense in their total sales. So they're still far behind big companies like uh, Lockheed or Boeing. Uh, but they're uh, not that far behind that we can say that in, in five or 10 years, they'll be uh, at the top.
0: Absolutely. And they are, if I recall your work correctly, mm-hmm. they sell things like UAVs mm-hmm. in abundance that we are much more hesitant mm-hmm. about the diffusion of technology that you were talking about yeah. a couple of answers ago.
1: Absolutely. That's right. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and and my last question, what mm-hmm. is your favorite data visualization,
1: Lucy? So it's um, a video, uh, a flow map of U.S. versus Russian arms exports in historic trends. So it's actually something I found on on the website of a a data scientist called uh, Will Geary. So um, he made a couple of videos using um, arms transfers data from CIPRI to show the flows um, of arms sales from countries to another. So there's this one where you see you have the U.S. arms sales in blue and the Russian arms sales in red from 1950 to today. And it's quite interesting because you see um, both the evolution of the arms market, so where are the, the biggest uh, buyers, but also where the two countries were competing for influence throughout huh. the Cold War uh, and after. and also it's, it's so, so it's who you know, they sell to. Who they sell it's to. It's not absolutely. just market-driven. No, absolutely. It's who they sell to. So... Uh, and it's, it's really made in a way that, that's quite um, nice to look at and also quite informative. So I think it's, it's a great uh, data visualization, and, and I recommend you you look at it.
0: Fabulous. Well, we will post the link to that uh, along with this audio, and um, I will also post the link to the Defense News uh, ranking that talks about your and MayA and sparkly research, and to the research itself, mm-hmm. which is... I gotta admit, rough sledding for an amateur like me, but super important. And so I wanna thank you for teaching me stuff that I had to learn uh, from your research. I wanna thank you for your excellent work for the double I double S. Lucy, Dr. Lucy Burras Sudro just taught us about arms sales in Yemen, the difficulties of getting a common Uh, devolution to European authority on arms sales because contrary to the conventional wisdom, it's not Germany that's holding up a consensus, it's France as a holdout against everybody else that's Mm -hmm. holding up. Um, And Arms and the State, a book all of us should read if we wanna Mm -hmm. understand the way technology and arms markets diffuse and develop. And also Will Geary's Flow of Arms Sales, Mm -hmm. the link to which we are gonna Host alongside this, Dr. Lucy burrows Sudra. Thank you so much for teaching me and our listeners about the work you do.
1: Thank you, Corey.